Okay, so I want to begin with reiterating what we covered as the theme from last Sunday. I'm not going to spend too much time doing a review. That's why we post the sermons for you to watch. Perhaps go back into that sermon and take additional notes and let the Word of God, which is alive and well, minister to you where you're at. But the theme of the entire letter is a powerful influence upon the Christian and the church, and it's the responsibility of you and I to underline the gospel in our lives, underline the influence of the Spirit in your life. And when you live a life that is underlining the truth of God's Word, you will, as the standard is set, expose those who are undermining the gospel. And that is not a bad thing. In fact, that is a good thing. That is a God thing. That we would live in such a way that our marriages and our families and our individual Christian walks would underline the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when people see us, they would see the work of the Lord within us and through us. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy to remind him of his calling. That central theme rolls over to two streams. So if there were two streams that ran the length of these six chapters, it would be one stream built upon the premise that truth needs to persevere in the Christian. Truth needs to endure and mature in the Christian. And if truth, the word of God, perseveres in you, then when you come together with other Christians who are opening up their lives to the word of God, then the church will preserve the truth. Truth needs to persevere in you. And when we come together as a collected body, we preserve the truth of God's word. That central theme, underline the gospel, that which exposes it, those that undermine the gospel, built upon two streams, is summarized when we get to the third chapter, Paul would write this. What's the purpose of this letter? These things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, he says, if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And we know he was not talking about a building when he said the house of God. Buildings come and go. God's people remain. He then defines the house of God as the church of the living God, the ecclesia, the called out body of believers in any given location who are the temples of the most high God who lives within his people, get this, and he defines the church as the pillar and the ground of truth. I love that phrase. It helps orient the role of the church in the grand scheme of life. The church is the pillar, that which upholds, and the foundation or the ground of truth. How important and pivotal is the church of Jesus Christ in all the earth when there's no other institution no other organization, 
who has a role to uphold truth. Think about that for a second. The impact that has been made on society from the inception of the church of Jesus Christ, from the Middle East into Asia Minor, up through what we call Europe, down into Africa, across the sea, to the land that you currently live in, and then the gospel was exported throughout the world with missions and missionaries sent that would convert communities in the name of Jesus, communities and societies that were built upon paganism. And it was the gospel when it touched down and the church was planted as the pillar and the ground of truth, you begin to see the impact that we have as believers. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Do you understand the implications of being the salt of the earth? The salt delays the decay of the day. The day is decaying. It's happening. You can't do anything to stop it, but you can slow it. That's what salt does. Now, when I was thinking about being a man who lives his life on the ground of truth, I quickly recognized that if I do not stand walk on and live from the ground of truth, the word of God, what quickly happens is I am pulled down by the gravity of lies. Now here's how this works. There's nothing physically speaking that we are aware of that isn't on a decline. If you don't upkeep your house, what happens to the house? If you don't tend to your garden, what happens to the garden? If you don't tend to your vehicle and get it serviced, what happens to your vehicle? Look at me. If you don't Take care of your body. There's a natural deterioration or decline. Almost like what goes up must come down. So here's the point, And here's where I want to begin. Because if I'm being honest, and if you're being honest, if we're willing to put that which is in my life right now, put it on the line, literally put it on the line. Fill in the blank. Think about that which right now needs to be placed on the ground of truth. And if it's not, then the gravity of lies is going to pull it down. So let's do an exercise together. It's the same word. Whatever word you choose, you fill in the blank. If the ground of truth is not holding up my blank, then the gravity of lies will pull down my blank. And the answer is not pants. Let's get that out of the way. If the ground of truth is not holding up my marriage, then you better believe the gravity of lies is pulling down my marriage. If the gravity of truth is not holding up my family, then the gravity of lies is pulling down my, you get the gist, right? If the gravity or the ground of truth is not holding up my habits, holding up my life, holding up my church, holding up my community, holding up my government, then the gravity of lies, that's the natural progression, is going to pull down the same. This is how important this letter is. It is setting forth a template for the church's message, for the church's members, for the church's ministers, for the church's ministries. Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is the recipient. The letter would be one, read by Timothy himself, two, 
read publicly to that body of believers. Where? In Ephesus. Timothy is left in Ephesus, as we'll discover. Paul is telling Timothy how to conduct himself amongst the people of God. We begin where we left off. Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul's the author, now the recipient. Verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Here's the introduction. Paul to Timothy. Now what we learn of Paul from his conversion in the book of Acts to his appointment in the 13th chapter of Acts, Paul is appointed by the early church leaders to go on his first missionary journey, as we call it. He is coupled with a man named Barnabas. They go from, ready? The gathering in Antioch, which is in Syria. There are two Antiochs. They're in Antioch, Syria, and they are sent forth. Their first destination that you'll read about in Acts 13 is Cyprus. It's an island. They would take a boat to get there. When he would touch down, he would go into the synagogues and he would preach the gospel. They would go from Cyprus on a boat north into Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. They would touch down in the other Antioch. Acts 13 tells us while they're in Antioch, he's going to the temple or the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel. He gets two responses in any given location. Jews and Gentiles alike, some Jews would believe and be converted to Christ. And the Gentiles would be converted from paganism likely to Christ. Some Jews would not believe. The unbelieving Jews would stir up a lot of trouble. They would claim Paul to be a blasphemous teacher and they would plot against him and try to stone him. That was the pattern of Paul's ministry. He goes from Antioch into Acts 14, a city called Iconium. What happens in Iconium? Same thing, goes in the synagogue, preaches the gospel, but it tells us unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, stirring them up, plotting to abuse and stone Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas become aware of the plot, and where do they flee to? It tells us Lystra or Lystra and Derby. What do they do when they get there? They're pushed out by persecution. They touch down in Lystra, and it says they preach the gospel in Lystra. Also in Lystra. Now, here's the significant details of Lystra. You need to get this. Lystra has such significance attached to it that we are going to learn Timothy's family is from Lystra. So it's likely when Paul touches down in Lystra for the first time and he preaches the gospel that it was either Timothy's grandmom or mom or Timothy himself who were converted based on Paul's first missionary journey there. What else happens in Lystra? Paul heals a crippled man, a man who was crippled from birth. That stirred up a lot of the local community. And they assumed, get this, Paul and Barnabas were gods. In fact, in their common language, they say 
the gods have visited us in the likeness of men. Isn't that something? They're so close to understanding the gospel that God visited us in the likeness of a man, and yet they're giving all the credit to Paul and Barnabas. Now they're saying it in a different language, so Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on until the priest of Zeus comes out and they want to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they're like, no, you've missed it. It's not about us. We're just the messengers. Now watch what happens. The Jews from Antioch, where he was before, and the Jews from Iconium, where he is, where he was before, then to Lystra, it says they persuaded the Jews who came down, verse 19, and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Can you picture this for a second? Just, for, just a second. They stoned Paul, large stones, like we discussed last Sunday about Timothy, uh, excuse me, Stephen. They stone him. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the city and they leave him there. Can you imagine what it would be like to be stoned? Actually, let me rephrase that to all the hippies out there. Um, I'm, I am talking about rocks. And a lot of you need to repent right now. So they take these stones based on the message that he is communicating, which is the message of Jesus Christ, and they hurl them at Paul. They drag him out of the city. They leave him for dead. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went back into the city. He went back to the very place where they stoned him. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Nothing stopping him because the message was that important. Verse 21, Acts chapter 14, if you're following. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, you're seeing a pattern here. The gospel goes forth into an unreached people group. Disciples are made. Look, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He goes back to the very cities where there was stirring of trouble, even though there was conversions of disciples. And here's why. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. All right, a lot of details. What's happening? Gospel goes forth. Lives are converted. They become part of the local church. Paul keeps it moving. Same model of ministry, preaches the gospel. Converts are made. He gathers them as, as a local body. He goes back to those communities where he just came from and he encourages them. It says he strengthens their souls. He exhorts them to continue in the faith. And here was the sermon. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You wanna know why that statement, that sermon is so powerful? because it was backed up by his life. And I think that's what's missing in present day society. We can say it, but do we actually live it? We can preach it, but are we actually demonstrating it? See, they could see Paul and Barnabas and recognize these guys just went through hell on earth. They were physically stoned. Paul was left for dead. And here he is again saying, guys, look at me. It was all worth it. We have to go through this 
Because that's what comes with serving the king and bringing forth the kingdom of God on planet earth. The entire time Paul is writing these letters, the epistles to these pastors and the epistles to the church bodies, you are seeing a closing of the gap between the two. What's written in letter with what's demonstrated in life. Now you better believe there wasn't probably a perfect blend of the two. Paul's made of the same stuff as us. He would fall short, he would fail, he would write about his struggles, but you better believe there was a desire in this man to wanna to close the gap between what he was writing in letter and what his life represented in person. Does that make sense? And likewise, Christian, there should be a desire for you and I to close the gap between what is written in letter and what is defined by my life. There will always be a gap, but that's sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God is working in me and through me. And I say, Lord, close the gap so that what I say is followed by how I live. And did you know that was the exact way the Lord used this broken vessel from last Sunday, if you saw the testimony of my friend, Little John. See, Little John wasn't coming to church. Little John wasn't reading the book, but there was something else that he was reading. And I haven't said this in a long time, and I think it's worth saying right now. I didn't realize until he told me that he was reading me. And what struck me was, I was the only Bible that guy would ever read. And what God uses is our examples. Ladies and gentlemen, how we live our lives is the first touch point for the non-believer to see that what we say is what we believe. And that is why I'm convinced that the most powerful sermon communicated is not by lip, it's by life. The most powerful message you could convey isn't what's coming out of your mouth, it's likely what's coming off of your life. So here you have Paul and Barnabas starting local church bodies. Verse 23 tells us, when they appointed the elders in every church, they prayed, they fasted, and they commended these leaders to the Lord in whom they believed. And you begin to see the formation in the early church in the book of Acts. Now, okay, time hop. Two to five years pass. Paul goes back to Antioch in Syria, eventually back to Jerusalem, and he's gonna go on his second missionary journey. So two to five years, it's hard to place the timelines. He goes back to these local bodies from before, and guess where he meets Timothy? Acts 16, verses one to three. Two to five years later, he comes to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named here he is, Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now we get some family of origin. First thing to note is Timothy at this point when he first meets Paul and Paul first meets him is already a disciple, which means somewhere along the way, two to five years earlier when Paul's in Lystra and he's preaching the gospel, many believe that's when grandmom who knew the holy scriptures and mom of Timothy would have been converted 
and likely would have taken that message back home where they would have led their son and grandson to the Lord. Why? Because dad's a Gentile, dad's a Greek. And here's why I love how God chooses us. He knew out of all the people who would best suit the apostle Paul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, who knew the law of Moses, and yet knew it so well and was wired in such a way that he would eventually be useful to reach the Gentiles, like Timothy, whose mother and grandmom were Jews and whose father was a Greek. And he would have had a really good handle on both cultures, which is awesome to note how God does not waste anything in our lives. It tells us in verse two, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Translation, Timothy, likely in his late teens, early 20s, is already serving in that local body. Serving in, look at me, serving in such a way that his reputation precedes him. Church, your reputation matters. Church leaders, your reputation matters. What caught Paul's eye and ear was Timothy's reputation that he was well spoken of by that community. Verse three, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And this is where we get Paul taking Timothy and the rest is biblical history. So I have a question, what was it about young Timothy? As referenced from last week, I hope this struck you as it struck me. He was a co-sender of six of Paul's 13 letters. I never knew that. When I saw that Timothy's name was included in six, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul authored 13 of them, and some would argue 14 if you include Hebrews. But 13 letters that we know Paul documented and wrote. Six of those 13, Timothy helped either write, but certainly sent, his names included. Two more of those 13 letters, making eight, he's the recipient of. I never realized how significant Timothy's life and ministry was in the grand scheme of what we call the New Testament until I was like, oh my goodness, eight of Paul's 13 letters Timothy had a part in? He would stand in for Paul from time to time. Paul would trust him. In his absence, he would send Timothy as his proxy. He would send Timothy as his troubleshooter. Timothy would represent Paul. His character would be proven, as we will see. But before we talk about his ministry's origin, I think it's important to talk about his family of origin. In other words, before there is a launch, Paul meets Timothy, there's a launch pad. Church, there's always a launch pad. Before Timothy goes out into ministry, there's a launch pad called his family. Paul's second letter to Timothy tells us a little bit more. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I thank God, and he's locked up when he writes this, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. And I can imagine the emotions and the spiritual bond between them. Paul's at the end of his life, not sure if he's going to get released. 
and he's writing to young Timothy, and he's saying to him, when I think about your tears and how you're so moved to love me, that brings me joy. And then he tells us, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. And now you have a chain link. You have family of origin. We learned earlier in Acts, Timothy's dad was a Greek, likely did not convert to Christianity. But you have his grandmother and his mother who were Jews, who had a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul's message, the gospel, led to their conversions. And here, Paul is saying, how significant is it for you, Timothy, to have had a grandmom and a mom who loved the Lord and faith was first in them before it was in you? So I'll stop and I'll ask, how many in this room right now can testify that your faith was either introduced or strengthened by a believing grandmom or a believing mom. Anybody want to be honest? Remarkable. Remarkable. The impact that a grandmother and a mother can have on the children. We know the impact a grandfather and a father can have and should have, but we often overlook the influence that grandmoms and moms can have now, if you didn't raise your hand and you're saying, I, I didn't have one. I didn't have parents who loved the Lord. I didn't have grandparents who loved the Lord. I want to encourage you and let you know, if you didn't have one, it's because you are called in this moment to be one. You understand what I'm saying? Like Terrence's testimony, as he shares it, is built upon that premise. When he looked at his family of origin, he was like, I want to be a chain breaker. And it's going to stop with me and it's going to start with me. And I love that because it wasn't a woe is me. It was, Lord, start with me. Let me say it again. It wasn't a woe is me. It was, Lord, start with me. And that is why we got to get this because Paul's letter to Timothy is about lasting legacy. See, lasting legacy or legacy that lasts is not what you leave someone. It's what you leave within someone. Oh, you can leave property. You can leave material possessions. You can leave your stocks and bonds. You can leave a hefty bank account upon your children and their children, but I'm here to tell you all those things will eventually run out. The only thing that will stand the test of time, that will transcend even your existence, when you go to the grave, what is left behind that will last beyond your heritage is the legacy that you have left within your children or those, as we will discover, who God has entrusted to your care. See, what are we leaving within someone? That's my question. And more than that, what's the foundation we are laying below someone? Proverbs chapter 22, verse six. How many know this verse? Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. All right, so, I've touched on this verse before, and you, and you know what? There are certain verses and there are certain themes that I believe the Lord constantly brings to the surface for a given season, and this is one of those verses. I think it's come out in, 
I don't know, five out of the last 10 sermons that I've preached, some way, somehow, the Lord is trying to tell us that we should train up the people in our lives in such a way that there's a foundation beneath their feet so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. Now, let me be very clear because this has been mistaught. Proverbs 22.6 is not a promise. In fact, Proverbs 22.6 has more to say about godly parents than it does about godly children because you can't control the outcome. And that's why the verse is like, it's not up to you. You do what you can. You make sure you put in place. Make, make sure you orient hearts and minds. You train up. There's also a negative connotation to the verse. It speaks to whatever way you train up a child, that is the way they'll be launched. Now the likelihood of them staying on that path, the percentages increase when you train them up in the Lord. Not a promise, only a premise. You see, the world that we live in right now, you know how many young families are part of this church? How many parents have children who are under the age of 17 right now? Look at this. Some of the most formative years in a child's life right now. And we are a better church because you choose to bring your families here. But what we do on a Sunday or what we do on a Thursday is not enough. And the responsibility, and we're in this with you, is for you to take the gospel and apply it in your family of origin in such a way that your children will know the Lord, they'll know his name, they'll know the tenets of scripture, they'll have some type of understanding, they might not fully grasp, but your responsibility is to at least present it to them so that the environment that they're coming from is preparing them, look at me, for the environment that they're going to. And I'm not just talking about public schools, I'm talking about the world in general. And we'd love to shelter them from the world, and we'd love to keep them in our nest, and we'd love to keep them under our arms, but that's not realistic. And we are living in a day and age which has never been more worse and blatantly antagonistic against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our kids have never been more confused. They'd rather teach our kids about the difference in appropriating pronouns that I just discovered today than learning how to read cursive writing. So I guess I'll say this, and I'll say it like this, that if you don't train up your child, the world will train up your child. And that's not a lesson for another time. That is a lesson for the times. And to be very clear, the church is not anti-transgender. The church is just pro-transformed. And we know the only way to not allow the gravity of lies to pull us down to hell is to make sure the ground of truth is holding us up to heaven. We live from the ground of truth. And the ground of truth is the ground that launches us in the way we walk and the way we talk. And this is exactly what Paul was trying to convey to Timothy. I'll prove it to you. In the second letter he would write to Timothy, he would say this, Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long suffering, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. He's constantly reminding young Timothy, 
throwing him back some 15, 16, maybe 20 years to the times when trials and persecutions were touching his life, and yet what was left was his faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, Timothy, out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then he tells them, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, those verses lead into this verse. Verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Ready? And that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know what that verse rolls over to? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the instruction of righteousness that the man or the woman of God may be complete, mature, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is saying, Timothy, your eyes have been on me. And I'm confident enough to say to you that you can follow my life because my eyes has been following Christ. And as long as I'm following him, I'm confident enough to say to you, you can follow me. Because Paul knew it wasn't about following him. It was about Paul being a roadmap for young Timothy to see Christ. My manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long suffering, my love, my persecutions, how I navigate afflictions. Timothy, you have been trained for this since you were a child. You know the word child in this passage means an infant. You know what the Holy Scriptures mean in this passage? Old Testament. In other words, grandmom and mom laid a foundation between, beneath Timothy's feet. And one day God would save Timothy. And then all of that foundation he'd build upon. Which really is the point of any given sermon. Is to remind the people of God that we are either oriented around the Holy Scriptures or we are oriented around the unholy culture. And that's really all there is to it. Moms and dads, you either orient your children around the Holy Scriptures, or they're being oriented around the unholy culture. That's it, there's no middle ground. We are either orienting our individual lives around the Holy Scriptures, or we are being oriented around the unholy culture. We are taking our mark from the Word of God, or we are taking our mark from the world. And here's how this works. Wherever you're taking your mark is the very influence by which you leave your mark. You want to leave a mark of Jesus Christ upon a life? You need to take your mark from the life of Jesus Christ. That's a fancy way of defining discipleship. Discipleship is imprinting an image of, upon someone it's like the likeness of a child to a parent. Now, let me tease this out for a second. What is discipleship? Discipleship from Paul to Timothy is Paul leading Timothy into Christ likeness. Paul first leading himself into Christ likeness and then imprinting that image upon his protege, his student, his spiritual son in the faith to be made into the likeness of Christ. Now, each of us that are parents we have biological disciples. You have children likely 
that are after your likeness. In fact, if you go to the children's ministry right after the service and just hang out there, you're going to see a lot of mini versions of faces that you see in this sanctuary right now. <laughs> you're like, oh my goodness, that is the biological disciple of Cody Panetta. I could see it in her little sweet face. That's his disciple. Let me show you one of my biological disciples. <laughs> now listen, we have no idea where this posture has come from as of late. It could come from me. I constantly have my arms crossed, whether I'm working or whether I'm standing, and maybe he's taking on the likeness of his dad. So I'm, I'm trying to move him from biological likeness, many of you said he looks just like me, to behavioral likeness, right? And you go, I've never seen you in that posture, Pastor Matt. I've never seen you with your arms crossed and this haughty smile on your face. And I say, that's because you don't see me behind the curtain after I get done preaching a sermon. <laughs> I'm feeling myself. Yeah. Until I get to my inbox. And then I'm reminded, your message was too long, your tone was too strong, you sounded like a clashing gong, and today's message made me want to hit my bong. All right. But he's not just feeling himself. Ezekiel, all of a sudden, even goes to this posture when he's in his feelings. And he tells us when he's mad. He, he grabs his chest and he says, I'm mad. And we know. Sarah thinks he learned it from me. I think he learned it from her. We don't know where he, he learned it from until the other night where he crossed his arms. But he didn't get out the words that he was mad. And that's what struck me in the moment where he didn't tell me he was mad. It's because he didn't have to. The person whose teaching he is currently sitting under told me how he was feeling. Watch this. What's wrong? He's mad. You make him upset. He's mad? So I'm convinced I've lost all control over the disciples that live in my house. And if you're asking after that video, who's the parents in that house? I can assure you, it is them. <laughs> See, the goal, obviously, even through the humor, the biological likeness, that's a given. But the behavioral likeness of discipleship is that the student would become like the teacher. And this is what Paul says to Timothy as we come to a close. To Timothy, a true son in the faith what an expression. This is not his physical son. This is his spiritual son. He identifies him as a true son, a legitimate son. And that word carried legal weight in that time. Timothy is to Paul a true son. This is in both professional and personal relations. How many times would Paul write to a church body and tell them that Timothy is with him? He says it to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, I have none like him, no one like-minded like Timothy to send. But you know his proven character, Paul writes, 
that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. He writes to the church body in Corinth, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. What is Timothy doing? Reminding the church of Paul's ways in Christ as I teach everywhere and in every church. Paul's like, I'm on the go. Timothy is my stand-in, and he's going to remind you of the importance of Christ-likeness. So here's the question. Who is your Timothy? Who is your Tabitha? Who do you have that you're currently pouring into, mentoring, discipling, reading the scriptures with, praying with? Who do you have in your life? And I know some of us are, are in different seasons, right? Our houses are full of life and activity. But I'm saying there's plenty of us in this room right now that we don't have a Timothy. We don't have somebody that we're walking with. And the equation of being a disciple always translates into making a disciple. See, Christ made disciples make disciples in Christ. And I crafted this quote this way because I wanted to begin with Christ and I wanted it to end with Christ. It's Christ who makes disciples and then Christ made disciples make disciples in Christ. And there's this beautiful relationship that flourishes in the church. And here's what I have to say. It never ceases to amaze me that many of you, when I see you, it makes my heart so light. Guys like Dominic never ceases to pour into young lives in this body. I see him with young guys that come through these doors. Dominic is sitting with them, praying with them, taking prayer requests, texting them, trying to meet with them. And I'm going, that's the recipe of a healthy body. I see my sister Sharon, Jay's wife, constantly sitting with younger ladies in the fellowship. And it, it, it makes me so encouraged that there are people who are going, I want to find me a Timothy and I want to find me a Tabitha. And, and these guys are in different places in their, their journey of life. But I'm saying, if each of us began to contribute to that end, we'd learn from Paul to Timothy. Timothy, a true son in the faith. And as Paul ends his introduction, he isn't even into the body yet. He says this, grace mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what I call the triad of salvific influence. Salvific is a fancy word that describes the influence of salvation. Now, typically, when Paul writes a church body, he only addresses them based on grace and peace. Grace and peace, he says. And here he adds mercy. Why? I'll tell you why. He adds grace, mercy, and peace to the salutations to Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. And it's because, ladies and gentlemen, pastors need a little bit more mercy than the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? He's like, Tim, grace, brother, which is God's unmerited favor upon your life. You don't deserve it. God gave it. Mercy, brother. Mercy is God's influence upon your life that kept you from what you did deserve. You deserved death. And God's mercy entered in and kept you from it. 
Peace, brother, shalom. Peace will preserve you in the midst of life's circumstances. It will guard your heart and mind. It comes from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, grace is the favor of salvation. You gotta know it. Mercy is the force of salvation. And peace is the fruit of salvation. So I wanna ask you a few qualifying questions before we take communion. Have you ever tasted this grace? Each of you, moms, dads, mothers and fathers, boys and girls, sons and daughters, do you know this grace I speak of? This grace that God gives us as a gift and you didn't deserve it. Your good works did not grant you this grace. Your life's resume, this is a free gift that God gives in Jesus Christ. Grace, do you know this grace? You gotta know this grace to be saved. How about mercy? When was the last time you came to the conclusion that God's mercy kept you from hell? You know what's crazy? That word isn't even mentioned in most churches, hell. That there's a real place designated for the demons and Satan and those who would reject God's grace. But those that receive God's grace understand by mercy, he kept me from what I deserved. And then when you have grace and mercy, then there's this beautiful peace that God supplies upon his people that guards the heart and mind through trying times. And it preserves the mind. Do you have this? Do you know this? I'm asking you. And I guess what I'm going to do next is have everybody just bow your head, close your eyes, and just ask yourself before I ask you, do I have this grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ? Can I call him Lord? Is he my Savior? I'm going to ask if there's anyone here, any one person, who has never received this grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you just throw your hand up? You've never actually made a decision to surrender your life to this grace, this mercy, and this peace. Would you just throw your hand up? We will see you. Is there one amongst us? Okay. So for this assembly, we take communion in reflection of that grace, that mercy, and that peace. See, when Jesus instituted the act of communion, it was passed down to the disciples and eventually reiterated by the Apostle Paul to the body in Corinth. And he would say, for what I have received from the Lord and that which I deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is what we call the sacrament of communion. If you did not receive the elements, ushers are walking down the aisle right now. 
to make sure you have them. I wanted to make sure you understood the terms. If you do not know God's grace, it's free. If you've never experienced and been humbled by God's mercy, that which kept you from what you did deserve, and if you've never tasted and seen the Lord is good and have been preserved by his peace, I caution you from taking the elements. I, I caution you because I love you. But for the rest of us, we take this as a sacred moment. We do it in remembrance of our king who's coming again, that his death was appropriated on the cross. All my sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with. It's gone. And not just your sinfulness being dealt with. God then gives you his righteousness to live a life well-pleasing to him. His spirit indwells your body. And it's in that spirit that we allow him to take over the spaces of our lives and our homes that have not been sanctified or consecrated to him. And we do it in this moment significantly and symbolically as we take what is called the bread and as we drink what is called the wine, we're doing it in such a manner that we're bringing the remembrance of what Jesus did on that cross, his death, to the forefront of our minds. So I'm going to ask, as you would take it with me, first, the body. That you would take it as you feel led. Now the blood to the cleansing and remission of sins. So Lord, seal this upon our consciences, our hearts, and our minds. Make us more like Jesus. That is the prayer of your saint. Bless this church, O God, in the name of Christ. Amen.